Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for joining us for this presentation. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu or support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. This lecture is a part of the 12th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosenstiel. We'll be hearing from Joseph Popjechny. Mr. Popjechny holds a Master of Arts degree in History from the University of Western Australia, where he also majored in economics. He has been a part-time tutor at the University of Western Australia, full-time teaching fellow at Monash University in Melbourne, and a part-time tutor at Murdoch University in Perth. He has worked for various federal politicians as an electoral officer and researcher. This eventually led him to become a journalist with various state and national publications before he retired in 2015. In 2004, his book, Hitler's Man in the East, Odilo Globotsnik, was published in America. He is currently working on two other unconnected research projects. Mr. Popjechny, welcome and thank you for joining us. Anna, thanks very much for your very, very friendly welcome. And uh, I suppose I should also say, uh, you know, hello America or hello Washington. Uh, I'm sitting here in Perth. It's a, it's a early evening, which means that it's uh, early morning on the east coast of the United States. The title of my talk here is Adolf Hitler's Eastern Dream, Origins and Outcomes, Outcomes or Consequences. Now, I want to before I get into the real the body of of, of the of the talk, I want to point out that it focuses solely on the Germanic peoples of Europe. And the important thing about the Germanic peoples is they essentially dominate Central Europe, present-day Germany, that's East and West, present-day Austria, and a little bit. The, the eastern side of Switzerland. That is what, what you can call the Germanic world or Germandom, if you like to use a, a, a less common word. Now, two significant moves by the Germanic peoples eastwards, um, they weren't the only moves. Germans moved, you know, some Germans moved and lived in the French domain. Many Germans over many centuries, particularly when, during the Thirty Year War, moved to various parts of Europe to get away because it was like famine and death. It was the Thirty Year War was a bit like what's happening in Ukraine today. But there are two movements of the Germanic peoples eastwards which stand out and are significant in what happened in the twentieth century. Now, the first of these was in Northern Europe. And it was spearheaded by two German institutions, beginning both, they, they ran side by side and beginning in the early part of the 13th century, the early 1200s. The first of these was called well, the Teutonic Knights. And the second one 
it was was the Hanseatic League. So what you had was a militant proselytizing Christian order moving along the southeastern shoreline of the Baltic uh, basin, and in the same at the same time, generally speaking, at the same time, you also had along that coastline a commercial entity with small townships on the coast moving right up even towards right up into Russia um, and these 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 formed these townships these ports these trading these commercial centers they formed a network and the, that has the name the Hanseatic League now by the end of the 13th century, so the late 1200s, what you had was Germanic dominance and growing and expanding dominance going right up towards Finland from essentially what we call Jutland, that is the, the peninsula that makes up Denmark. And these people, so, so these Germanic peoples were commercially dominant and also uh, off and on, militarily and religiously dominant. And um, they eventually established, and they, they also encouraged settlement by Germans and the imposition of Germanic culture. So that is, the, that is a significant expansion of a central European people, the Germans, moving right away from their traditional lands, which was Central Europe. Now, the second one of these was a move that came much, much later, many hundreds of years later. It, it followed 30 or 40, 20 or 30 years after the city of Vienna in Austria had come, was under siege from the Ottomans, that is the Turks, in the 1680s. And the Ottomans and Vienna, Vienna was rescued or saved from, from a siege by a, an armed force led by a Polish king, Jan Sobieski, uh, but it wasn't just Polish. That he had other allies uh, assisting him. And these people were essentially defending Christendom and they defeated the Turks and expelled them from the Habsburg lands. And then something quite unusual happened in, in European history. There was a general, um, uh, he was a general and, and a prince, Prince Eugene of Savoy. He lived from 1663 to 1736. So we're looking at nearly 50 years there. And he continued pushing the Ottomans and the Turks out of the Balkans. So there were Turks that had been settled for over 100 years in parts of Hungary, today's Hungary, and parts of, uh, parts of uh, the Balkans, like present-day Serbia. And over a series of battles that lasted until towards the end of Eugen, Prince Eugen's life, the Turks were pushed back towards Constantinople, not totally. And the really important outcome of this was 
that Prince Eugen just didn't win battles and he, he won many as a marshal for the Habsburg monarchy. But what happened was that he brought in a, a, a colleague called Claudius Florimund, Count of Mercy, not often spoken about. And what he brought Claudius in to do was to settle Germans on lands that had been de-Islamized, that had been, uh, the, the, these lands were left, they, the, the Ottomans fled and Claudius Florimund settled Germans and he recruited Germans from as far as Lorraine in France and uh, the lands that are called Schwabian Germanic lands. And these people slowly settled and Germanized former Islamic lands. Now, this was an important precedent later on, and I'll, I will expand on that point. So that's, that's just to set the scene um, of, of what in fact happened. Now, what I want to do to stress this point of the settlement of Germanic peoples on what is called Southern, Southern Hungary and, and a, a name called the Banat, a region called B-A-N-A-T, is that um, one American historian uh, from Central Michigan University, um, a Dr. Susan Clarkson, she really captures the, the essence of what it was that, that Florimund, Claudius Florimund, the assistant to Prince Eugene of Savoy did. So I want to just quote about six or seven quite lengthy paragraphs because she says it so well. She says, during the 18th century, the Habsburg monarchy in Austria, of Austria, which ruled Hungary at that time, had enticed Germans to emigrate to the unsettled lands of southern Hungary, which had been devastated by over 150 years of Turkish occupation. From 1711, now Vienna was liberated by Sobieski and his allies in 1783. So we're talking, you know, a solid two decades later. She says from 1711 to 1750, approximately 800 villages were founded in Hungary by German settlers. The Banat province was one of the primary areas of settlement. And the Banat area is, 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 is probably 50 to 100 kilometres north of present-day Belgrade, so, that it, it, so it's just north of um, Serbia. She, she explains further, after the first battle of Mohacs, the Turks dominated two-thirds of Hungary, including the Banat. War with the Turks continued throughout the 16th and 17th century centuries. The Austrian Imperial Army, commanded by Prince Eugen of Savoy, was finally successful in driving them out. The colonization of Banat was entrusted to Claudius Florimon. See, so it wasn't just a battle that finished. They wanted to make it permanently European, permanently Germanic, permanently Christian. General under Prince Eugen, sent agents to the Habsburg territories in the region, which is now Western Germany. Settlers came from the regions known as Baden, Württemberg, Alsace, Lorraine, 
the Rhineland, Westphalia, Bavaria, and Swabia from other and and from other areas. The colonization of the Banat came to be known as it, the German term, the Grossschwabian Zuger, or the Great Swabian Trek. The majority of the migration took place in three phases, which were named after the Habsburgian sponsors, that is, the ruler in Vienna. The first was called the Carolingian, Carolin, sorry, the German, Carolinische Aussiedlung or Caroline colonization, which occurred from 1718 to 1737. The second was called the Maria Theresa colonization, which occurred from 1744 to 1772. And the final one, and a shorter one, was the Josephine after Emperor Joseph II colonization, which took place under Joseph II from 1782 to 1787. After that, that's it. After 1789, the government-sponsored colonization was discontinued, but some settlers continued to arrive uh, until 1829. So, what what is important to realize is that these these two moves eastward by German peoples included colonization which means settlement. These areas were Germanized and they were important precedents and they came back into the mind of certain German writers and propagandists in the 19th century. So we're talking um, the, yeah, we're talking the 1800s. Now, what happens in the 1800s in Germany before Germany is unified in the latter part of that century is that a number of very passionate and patriotic Germanics emerged. And I will just name them and list a couple of points of, I mean, essentially these people became propagandists and promoters of the idea of Germans acquiring Eastern lands, that is lands that was settled by Poles, Ukrainians, um, and, and up into the Baltic areas, the Ests, the Estonians, the Lets, the Latvians, and Lithuanians. So these are lands to the east of Germandom. Now, the first of them is a man called Friedrich Ratzel, R-A-T-Z-E-L. He lived from 1844 to 1904, so he lived through a good a good segment of the 19th century into the 20th. Now, these are just some high points that make him, uh, make him a significant German figure, a propagandist and promoter of the East. He was a geographer. He laid the basis of the notion of a German word, Lebensraum, living room or living space. He coined the term and promoted it. One of his books, probably Der Stadt und sein Boden, the English is the state and its soil, was available for prisoners to read in Landsberg prison, that is down in Bavaria, where Adolf Hitler in 1924 was jailed. It was in the prison there in a library. Ratzel visited North America, Cuba and Mexico in the mid 1870s. During the sojourn, he he'd studied the, quote, 
influence of people of German origin in the Midwest of the United States. So he was keen on seeing how Germans adapted to new lands. In Landsberg prison, where Hitler had been for less, slightly less than a year jailed, um, uh, Hitler and his closest colleague, Rudolf Hess, were visited by the eminent personage Karl Haushofer, author of a book called Geopolitics of the Pacific Ocean, Studies on the Relationship Between Geography and History. And it was there that the book Mein Kampf, Hitler's most famous book, was written, and it was to become a blueprint for what I refer to, rather than using the word Nazi, this and Nazi, that. I call it the Hitler movement. It was a movement that encapsulated and became quite popular in Germanic lands before, uh, after World War I. So that's Frederick Reitzel, R-A-T-Z-E-L. Another German, a passionate Germanic, was a chap called, with a very un-German un name, Paul Anton de Lagarde. He, he got this French name, I believe, from an aunt who imposed it on him, whereas he, did, he actually did, did have a German name prior to that, Botica. Now, he lived from 1827 to 1891. Now, here's some high points of, of uh, Lagarde, de Lagarde. He was a deeply nationalistic, he held deeply nationalistic political views. And these were published in 1887 under the title German Writings. De Lagarde wished to see a unified Germany. Germany didn't unify until 1870, meaning that Prussia and Austria would be combined, form one unit. And he also wished to see Tsarist Russia, which was large and, and, and at that time came right up, up against Prussia because there was no Poland. Poland had been dismantled in the late 18th century by two Germanic powers, Austria and Prussia, and Russia being the third. It was a Slavic power. So, he, so, so Russia came up against Prussia and Austria. And Delagarde um, did not look favourably upon these lands being under Russian tutelage. Um, so he used to dispatch his writings to eminent people like Otto von Bismarck, Prince Wilhelm of Prussia, and journalists as well as Prussian deputies to their parliament. So he pushed his views out. He was a proselytizer. Um, he, he believed that Germany, to avoid decline, must launch a preemptive war. He was a warmonger. He, he was a bit like our good friend at the moment, Mr. Putin. He launched a war of last month and forcibly removed people, entire nations, outside of the Germanic sphere of living, which would be precisely what Hitler and Heinrich set about doing after 1939. And I will expand on that point shortly. Delagarde described the German colonization of Poland, that this is uh, what he proposed, the, the, the colonization, um, he deemed it the first step for the immediate expulsion of all Polish Jews. Further population transfers, I've got the, the term population transfers in inverted commas, because that's Lagarde's own term, population transfers, would consist of moving Slovenes, Czechs, Magyars, 
and other non-Germanic people within the Austrian Empire to def def definitely assigned areas where they could live and die in regulated oblivion. That's a quote from Fritz Stern, an American historian, in, in the book, The Politics of Cultural Despair, a study on the rise of the Germanic ideology, which is what we're talking about here. A third writer, important propagandist and promoter of Eastern expansion was a chap by the name of Adolf Bartels, 1862, and he lived till 1949, that is the year Germany lost the Second World War. He was a member of what is called the Deutsche Volkische Movement, that's folk movement. This was a movement of uh, love of soil, love of nature, love of Germandom. It was an, uh, he was also an ardent Darwinian, so he believed in the survival of the fittest. And he was a professor of German literature who saw nations incessantly fighting each other for, res for reciprocal extermination. He believed warfare was, uh, he believed international relations was about warfare, one defeating the other and occupying and, and commandeering their lands. In 1908, in an essay titled Racial Breeding, Bartels wrote, and I quote, it's quite a long quote, perhaps destiny itself will soon place before us a major task. Perhaps the Russian colossus, eaten away by revolution, will in fact come tumbling down and we warriors and colonists will be entrusted with the task as was once the case in the Middle Ages. So he's actually alluding back to the Teutonic Knights there, because they had an influence on the German mind of making our way eastward and permeating with our military colonies that gigantic land up to the Pacific Ocean. He wanted he, he envisaged Germandom expanding right up to Alaska, except there'd be the, the, the Bering Straits, of course, and the Pamir Plateau that's, that's in Tibet. Um, in, in order to make possible a defence against the surging yellow peril. So he had no sympathy for, for the Chinese. Now, um, that, that is a quote from uh, a, another American writer, Germ, uh, Jost Hermwald, and it's titled Old Dreams of a New Reich, Volkish Utopias and National Socialism. So you'll see that the Hitler movement had long, long origins, old, old origins. In 1916, Bartels uh, had a pamphlet released called The Price of Victory, a German West Russia. And he wrote, we can do nothing less than take the land up to the Dvina and Dnieper rivers. We need all the land up to those rivers and up to the Black Sea. We must push Russia into Asia and set up the possibility of a German state of 100 million strong. Um, another, another writer, Heinrich von Kloss, 1868-1853. He, he was the second president of an enormously influential political movement that existed in Germany called the, the, German, the Pan-German League which impacted on the minds of a generation of restless young German, um, Germans. During Hitler's Munich trial in March of 1924, after which he was jailed at Landsberg, 
the future Germanic Margrave, or the Fuhrer, I'm referring to Hitler, said, I left Vienna as an absolute anti-Semite, as an arch enemy of the entire Marxist philosophy, and here's the important thing, as a pan-German in my political conviction. So Hitler was influenced by those ideas. Um, von Kluss, under a pseudonym, Einhardt, wrote a short history of the German people that appeared in four editions, so it was a popular publication, between 1909 and 1912, so the years immediately before the Great War or the First World War. It proved to be popular with many of those who entered the leadership ranks of the growing Hitler movement during the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, this was followed in 1912 with another work which he titled If I Were Kaiser, in which he advocated a tougher form of imperial control and stressed Germany's need for land for settlement. So um, there were others, but he the, they are the four main ones. There is one that's worth remembering that he's actually an Austrian, Hans Ludwig Rosiger. 1880 to 1929. He was author of a book called Der Golfstrom, which means the Gulf Stream. That's the one that runs through Mexico, past Florida, and goes up the east coast of the United States, warm waters up towards Greenland. Now, the note I have on that is that this book came out in 1913, and it tells of the total diversion diversion of the Gulf Stream current that produces a new ice age. So those warm waters not going there, northwards, followed by a German dictator who carries out a program of biological purification. Purification, that word didn't go. And the enslavement and extermination of undesirable races. That is quote, I'm quoting there. So you had these propagandists proselytizers of um, the German race, uh, Germandom expanding, and these people, some of them also started moving into what one could call biological issues. Now, this man, Jost Hermann, who I'd quoted earlier, he names a number of others who were significant in the, in the hurly-burly of the development of the Hitler movement's racial outlook. One was called Otto Amon, A-M-M-O-N. Another one was Alfred Ploetz, P-L-O-E-T-Z. Another one was Wilhelm Schellmeyer, and also an Alexander Tilly, T-I-L-E. Now, just a couple of points on each of these. Tilly's manifesto represents a chauvinistic corruption of earlier nationalistic concepts in which the biologically superior are the noble individuals to be found among the Germans. He explains that those who are biologically and by implication economically stronger hold the right not only to rule over their own people, but also to conquer foreign territories and to exterminate any native population as well, all in the name of protecting mankind from a decline into weakness and, in and accompanying biological inferiority. So there was this belief that by killing the inferior, you were saving humanity, keeping it up to a high standard. Uh, one quote about, say, Shell Meyer. 
He was a doctor and an amateur researcher. He, he was the winner of a 1900 essay contest sponsored by none other than the German industrialist, Al, industrialist Alfred Krupp, titled, What Can We Learn from the Principles of Darwinism from Application to Inner Political Development and the Laws of the State? So he wrote an essay on this. Um, another doctor who, whose name I've mentioned, Alfred Ploetz, held essentially identical views which included advocating that in wartime, inferior members of the race should serve at the front, at the front line. Uh, furthermore, this is quoting an American historian, George Moss, furthermore, as an added measure to ensure physical fitness, Ploet suggested that at a child's birth, a consultation of doctors should judge its fitness to live or die. So you had, as well as proselytizing and arguing for acquiring Eastern lands, running side by side with that, you had propagandists who were moving into area, biological questions and interested in the superiority, superiority or alleged superiority of one race over another. So that is the, 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 midi, the Middle Ages background and the 19th century background that I've covered. But before, before the, 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 the writings of those men impacted in the 1920s, it's interesting to note that during World War I, when the, when the Prussian or German army expanded eastwards in 1915, excuse me, in 1915, um, the great uh, military supremos, great German military supremos, Erich Ludendorff uh, and, uh, and um, Hindenburg, right? These two men had military victories on the Prussian lands, defeated the Russian army, and in 1915, they made an enormous push on the whole Eastern Front, further many hundreds of kilometers. Now, the lands that make up today's Lithuania, uh, Latvia, and Estonia, and present-day Northeastern Poland, Ludendorff, who was for a short time a very close friend of Adolf Hitler's, that is in the 1920s, he, because they had conquered these lands, expelled the Russian army, the, the Tsarist army, um, they set up a, a sort of a military state. It's not often talked about in English, English language history books. It's called Oberostland. And this state only existed for two or three years under Ludendorff's tutelage, but it was essentially a, a socialist military um, entity where Germans were moved in to rule it as a colony. And it was actually extremely important in Germany being able to hold out till 1918 because they ended up um, because Germany from 1914, when that war broke out, had been under what the British, what is called the naval blockade. The British Navy in the North Sea would not allow any, any ships to come in. And Germany was blocked off, a bit like the sanctions that Mr. Putin is undertaking at the moment by the Western world. But this is 
in this case, I'm talking about Germany and um, and 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 the and the the Entente powers, France and England, except England had the navy where it was able to enforce it. And this Ober-Ostland over on the Baltic lands um, actually had surpluses in grain and helped help Germany uh, continue the war on till 1918, when, when eventually, at the end of 1918, it was Ludendorff who gave the advice to the Kaiser that Germany could no longer hold out. Um, First World War was not actually lost in the in the in the trenches it was actually lost economically now we finally come to the one of the most important men of the 20th century and uh, that is adolf hitler and it's important it's just important to stress before i quote a what i believe to be the most important lines in adolf hitler's book mein kampf written in landsberg prison in 1924, published in 1925. Um, it's important to note that Hitler and his colleagues, who were a tightly knit group, they were influenced to varying degrees by all those 19th century scribblers and writers and promoters and propagandists, to varying degrees with each one. Hitler himself says, and I came out of Vienna, I was an anti-Semite, I was this, but I was a pan-German. That's von Klaus, you see. Now, Hitler is in jail and he's, he, they sit down because they've been arrested, they'd, they'd run a march and they'd been, many of their friends have been shot down by the police, they'd been tried. And in writing his book, Mein Kampf, which is not a, not a short book, it's quite a sizable book. It's often, most people say it's difficult to read because it's, it's sort of encoded in his, in his sort of ideology. But here, to me, is the most important long paragraph. And not coincidentally, it reflects what these other writers that preceded him had been saying. So I read it. This comes from Mein Kampf, paperback, Adolf Hitler, edited by Donald Cameron Watt, uh, pages 598 to 590. Adolf speaks. And so we national socialists consciously draw a line beneath the foreign policy tendency of our pre-war period. What he's talking about there is of Germany pre-1914. Pre we draw a line under that. We're not going to go the same way. We take up where we broke off 600 years ago. So he's referring there, without saying it, to the Teutonic Knights, to the Hanseatic League, the entrepreneurs who Germanized lands in the east along the Baltic coast. He says, we, we go back to that period 600 years ago we stop the endless German movement to the south, to the Balkans. The West, when he says the West, that means the United States and Canada. Tens and tens of thousands of Germans settled in the United States. They became Americans very, very quickly because they lost their language and adopted English. That was 
one of the thing, one of the important keys of becoming an American, because English was the language, the lingua franca of the United States. And we turn our gaze, this is Hitler speaking, we turn our gaze towards the land on the east. He doesn't say this, I've got this in square brackets, Poland, the Baltic lands, Oberostland, which Ludendorff, his friend had once created the, over there, and the Soviet Union, Stalin's country. At long last, we break off the colonial commercial policy of the pre-war period and shift to the soil policy. So he doesn't want a commercial policy because Germany had colonies in Africa, in the Pacific, and these traded. They brought in tea and all sorts of products from those places. And he's not interested in commerce. He's saying we're interested in the soil. The farming of the land is, is what he's really uh, driving at. So to repeat that line, at long last, we break off the colonial and commercial policy of the pre-war period and shift to the soil policy of the future. Our task, that, that is, we national, the, the task of we national socialists, the mission of the national socialist movement is to bring our own people to such political insight that they will not see their goal for the future in the breathtaking sensation of a new Alexander, that is Alexander the Great, his conquest, but in the industrious work of the German plough, to which the sword needs only give soil. Very eloquently written, I must say. What he's saying is, we're not just going to war for the sake of war. We're not wanting to be like Alexander the Great who marched all over the Middle East and Central Asia. We are going to war to get land to nourish so that we can feed ourselves. That's what Adolf was saying there. And that's what he's saying we've got to do. And he wrote that in 1924. Now, in 1939, he launched the war, conquered Poland, and in 1940, he, he got back on track because he had temporarily been an ally of the Soviet Union, he got back on track and attacked the Soviet Union because he wanted the lands of the East as set out in Mein Kampf and reflecting what all those earlier or most of those early writers had been advocating. That's the importance. So what happened was the SS under his colleague Heinrich Himmler had set up a number of bureaucracies and one of these bureaucracies started working on something called General Plan Ost, a general plan for the East. And these were, this was worked on primarily by an SS professor from Berlin University called Conrad Meyer Hetling. And what he set out to do was to draw up, and he did, he drew it up, it has been largely destroyed, to set up this plan of how after the Red Army, the German army had defeated the Red Army, they would start settling and expelling peoples, non-Germanic peoples from the Soviet Union, from Poland, from the Baltic states. Now, that plan was worked on in Berlin by Conrad Meyer-Hetling. He had, he had 
geographers, he had uh, agronomists, he had a lot of very specialist and well-qualified people drawing up that plan. But there was another centre where planning was going on, and this was in in the Polish southeast eastern city of Lublin, L-U-B-L-I-N. Now in Lublin there was a Austrian SS man called Odilo Globocznik. Um, Hannah has referred to him because he's in the title of, of the biography of him that I've written, Hitler's Man in the East, Odilo Globocznik. He was head of the SS and police in what was called the Lublin District. Now, two things that he, he did there. One was... He was the man who built the killing centres, that is um, Treblinka, Sobibor and Belzec, which were used to murder in the order of one and a half million Jews, mainly Polish but not solely Polish Jews, who had been held in ghettos and they were moved, trained in, and that's where, that's, there's a lot of talk about Auschwitz, Birkenau, but this was really the center of what is called Action Reinhardt, and Globocznik was the head of it. So he, he was given the order in early 1942 to move, and that's what happened mainly throughout 1942 into 1943. Now, the Jewish genocide has been largely written about for the last 60, 70 years, and in my view, quite rightly so. But I think we've got to the point where there's very little that can be said original about it. All the documents have been found and looked at, you know, upside down and back to front. What is less well known about Globocznik, and this is the point I want to drive home very strongly in these last five or ten minutes. Globocznik had a, he had established in Lublin a research centre called the Research Centre for Eastern Settlement. Little is written on this, even to this day, although I do mention it in my biography of Blavatsnik, but it's still not widely known. So in German, it's called Forschungsstelle für Ostunterkunft, Ost Research Centre for Eastern Settlement. Now, in May of 1943, an SS Stummbahnführer a fairly senior SS man working in Berlin called Albert Franke Gricker. He went, he was sent on a mission to go to Auschwitz-Buchenau and, and to, to visit Globocznik and to look around and check how the concentration and killing centre camps were getting along. So he was there to do a fact-finding trip and he wrote a long report and I'm going to extract one segment of that report. So here we go, it's quite a long quote. In the late hours of the afternoon, we go to inspect SS barracks in Lublin, and we are being shown round by Gruppenfuhrer Glavotsnik. In these barracks, the ideological planning for the reconstruction and colonization of the general government, that's the name that the Hitler movement gave to Poland, the central part of present day Poland, it was called the general government. They didn't use the word Poland or Polish deliberately. The general government takes place. This is where the reconstruction and colonization planning takes place. 
It is gratifying to see the whole work in this sphere is planned to every detail and people will be resettled only after the planning has been completed. The detailed planning makes it possible to occupy thousands of settlements in a few weeks and to affect the whole resettlement, which means deportation of the Polish population and the settling of German farmers without great difficulty. The work of the SS in the sphere of, the, of preparing this resettlement is considerable. We see that the planning of the German settlements is thought out to the smallest detail. All the sanitary arrangements, canalization, electric light, water, economic problems are being worked out by young experts. The entire decoration of the cottages is considered. Halls for festivals are planned, etc. The preparation extends even to the personal life of the settlers. A form of life is being tried out in these settlements in small proportion, which is the, this is very important, I've italicized it, which is the final object of the SS organization for the whole of the German nation in future. Germany under Hitler was going to be a totally planned national socialist nation extending eastwards. We realise with joy that this huge work which has been planned and carried out under such difficult circumstances is not only theoretical, but it has become reality in the Eastern sphere. For the first time, we can understand the whole colonisation plan of the Reichsführer, that's Himmler, this man's boss, because Himmler was the main promoter of it. One can see how he is building up a big belt of German settlement across the masses of Slav nations. It is proved by statistics how much German blood can be saved out of the Polish people. They believe that amongst the Poles there was sort of German blood, so they, that's why all that racial uh, identification by the SS. It is delightful to sit together with these young men of the SS who have university education, who despite their sharp criticism, fully recognize the big mission of the German nation in the Eastern sphere. Skilled engineers and tradesmen, experts on building and canalization, run around with the rank of private and this alone gives them the feeling that the very work is welcome but ultimately not appreciated. Group SS Gruppenführer Herr gets detailed information, he's back in Berlin on their work. And then the final thing is, is after this very interesting inspection, this is the most important sentence in that long quote, after this very important inspection of the SS barracks, which gives us for the first time a clear picture of the situation of the Germans in the Eastern sphere, we attend a social function. So he's, he's suddenly been enlightened on exactly what is planned right through to the east. Now, two shorter quotes which back up what he said. Another person who visited that research institute was Rudolf Franz Ferdinand Hurst. Who was he? He was head of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the, the famous Auschwitz that we hear about. And he visited Lublin and said, he actually was eventually captured by the Poles after the war, tried and hanged, but he, in, while interned, he wrote a book called 
Commandant of Auschwitz, the autobiography of Rudolf Hess. It was published in Poland in 1959. I actually quote from the Polish um, edition, but it does exist in English and I have an English version. Now here's what he says, and I've only extracted one quote. He says, and I say in the Polish, at page 236, he describes a meeting with, with Globocznik by stating, quote, Globocznik expounded his fantastic plans of establishing bases reaching, and I stress the next few words, as far as the Urals. So it was all of European Russia. And one other final quote from an SS man called Johannes Müller, who actually worked for Globocznik in Lublin. He was a senior policeman there. And in his 2nd of December, 1943, Nuremberg affidavit, this is a historical document, he states, so he's written this down, within his, that's Globocznik's, within Globocznik's staff, he maintained an absolutely fantastic-looking large-scale planning organisation. This section concerned itself with settlement projects for the whole of European USSR. So they, those three witnesses, Grich, Franka Grichka, Hearst and Mueller, they... They saw this research centre. They went up there. They saw the boards, the plans and everything that was being worked out by engineers and draftsmen and the like. And under Globotsnik, there was a plan being devised. And the important thing is that in November of 1942, Globotsnik actually launched a trial run of that plan. And this is called the Zamushch lands expulsions. So in 1942, the Zamushch county, that's just south of Lublin, due to the fertile black soil of the area, it was chosen for further German colonization within the general government, that's Poland, as part of General Plan Ost. So what he did there was he expelled from some 600 villages, over 100,000 Polish peasants, and on some of them, not all, he actually settled Germans, Germans that had been brought in early in the war from east of Austria, where Stalin had released them, and they were settled there to, and the Zamush lands expulsion action was a trial run for what was to go on after the Red Army was defeated, which we know never happened. But the intention was over about the next 20 to 30 years, there would be a progressive expulsion of the Slavics and Tatars and Jews and Georgians, whatever else. They would be steadily expelled beyond the Ural Mountains so that the famous Hitler Reich, the thousand year Reich, could be established. I hope this is of assistance to anybody who has listened to what I've said.